welcome to The Scriptures Are Real. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and this is just a short introduction to uh, that will be used for two different podcasts by uh, Kim Matheson. I actually interviewed Kim just once, and it was very early on when we were trying to figure out uh, some of our technical details, and I didn't do a good job. So there's an echo problem that we've done our best to get rid of, but it's still there, and I hope you can just bear through it because the interview was so good. I hated to or at least Kim's part of it was so good. I hated to do anything that would uh, not uh, try and replicate it. It just didn't seem like a reasonable thing to try and do. Also, she talked about a few different things, and it seemed worth breaking into two different episodes. So you'll hear the same introduction from me and saying hi to her in both of those episodes. One of those will be about Elijah, and one of those will be about Jacob wrestling with an angel. And so you'll hear this introduction and my introduction with her and both of those, and then you'll hear different material. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Kim. She is just fantastic, and I know I enjoyed it. Thank you. Hi, Hi, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. I'm your host, Kerry Muelstein, and this is the podcast where we talk about things that have made the Scriptures come alive or be more real to us. We think that's important because uh, when the Scriptures are more real, you're more easily able to apply them to your life and draw power out of them. And hopefully uh, during those tough times and those times you need extra guidance, uh, having the scriptures be more real allows you to draw more power from them and, and receive inspiration from the Holy Ghost as you read them and, and stay anchored in Christ. Uh, and so there are a lot of good things that happen as we figure out how real the scriptures are. And I'm especially excited today. My guest is Kim Matheson, uh, who was actually once a student of mine. Uh, we went to uh, Egypt. She excavated with me in Egypt and uh, since then has gone on to do fantastic things, both in her studies and uh, I've heard her lectures and read articles and even a little book by her. And I think she uh, has a lot to bring to the table. I'm going to let her give you the particulars of that she would like to of uh, what uh, what she's studying and what she's working on. But I just want to say welcome, Kim. It's so good to be with you again. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, yes, yeah, so you asked about just kind of introductory stuff, what I'm up to. I'm currently a PhD student in theology at Loyola University, Chicago. Um, and I'm working, I'm in the last stages of my dissertation where I look at prayer and kind of Christian devotional practices of prayer and the effect that they have on the disciple and on the world as you, you know, retreat from the world for a few minutes every day and end up kind of suspending your normal everyday concerns. I have a dissertation that looks at that. Uh, what better thing could we be thinking about and looking at? So that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And then you studied uh, before that uh, at Harvard, mm -hmm. wasn't it? Yep. Yeah. I did a master's degree at Harvard and then before that right here at BYU. Mm -hmm. um, yep. where, where I was fortunate to work with yeah. this. Yeah. Well, good. Uh, and I've just heard Kim talk about the scriptures enough to know that she really is serious about looking at them and has uh, wonderful insights. And I think that if you're doing that, then you have to have had moments where as you were reading, suddenly you saw something, you understood something, you heard something, whatever, that you just went, oh. I, I get this, and, and it just became more real to you. So if you have some of those you'd be willing to share with us, we'd love to hear about them. Yeah, well, I've got I've got one that occurred to me in particular as, as you invited me to be on this podcast, and it has to do with Revelation and 1 Kings chapter 19. Um, so before I, I get that story. such a good story, before I get into the text, let me just kind of describe the, the confluence of Revelation stuff that I was thinking about. Um, this was, I guess, a couple of years ago now when President Nelson was talking about the importance of personal revelation and said, right. 
it's not going to be possible to survive spiritually in coming days unless you figure out personal revelation. You get your connection with heaven really squared away. Um, and that was a forceful statement. We all felt it. So I was kind of starting to think about that. And then at the same time, I was going through some experiences in my life where I felt like I really needed personal revelation. I had some big questions. Um and knowing that the temple is a house of revelation, I remember going to the temple with my questions, as you do, and you you sit before the endowment session and you're pondering your questions and you're hoping to receive answers. And I had prayed specifically before entering this temple session that I would get the answer I needed. I ended up having a really remarkable experience at the temple. I learned a lot about revelation but it did not answer my question at all in any way <laughs> remotely. And what happened was I was sitting in um, kind of the chapel before you go in for your session, praying about, you know, I would like to receive some revelation. And for that five minutes before my session started, I felt like almost like a, like a window opened. And all of a sudden I was being taught by the spirit, really powerful truths about revelation, about how the spirit will speak to you when you're thinking about a problem and working on it and how the spirit can only give you guidance. If it, it, it can nudge you in right directions, as long as you're moving, as long as it has material to work on. Anyway, the, the pertinent point is that for five minutes, I felt like I was just getting a clear, steady download of truths about revelation and then it felt like the window closed, and I went into and had a normal session, and that was that. On the other end of the session, I was sitting in the ceiling room and having an unusual experience in the ceiling room. Yeah, the ceiling or the celestial room. room. Thank you. Yeah, the yeah. celestial room. Um, usually a very peaceful place, but I was feeling very agitated, mm. just kind of antsy. I wasn't sure why I was feeling antsy. And so at first I thought, well, there were a couple temple patrons near me who were having a conversation and whispering rather loudly. And so I thought maybe, maybe oh, they're that just. That was probably me. Uh, <laughs> maybe that I, was. I don't have a good quiet voice. But anyway, sorry. Neither keep did going. they, these yeah. sweet sisters. Yeah. So I thought, all right, this is just not going to be the most contemplative time in the celestial room. That's fine. So then I, I went and I um, changed back into my church clothes and. Um, still felt really antsy, which meant it wasn't those two patrons. It was something else. And I thought, well, maybe it's just my to-do list. I know I have a lot to do. I got to get home and get back to my day. So then I changed and I exit the temple and I was walking out the doors kind of past the fountain in front of the Chicago temple, still feeling so agitated and it was getting worse. And finally, I realized something is going on. What is happening with this experience? So I sat down to try and figure it out. And I started a prayer and asked why am I so anxious? That's not a typical experience for me after the temple. And the verse that came to my mind was the one from the Doctrine and Covenants about a stupor of thought. Mm. And it seemed to me in that moment that um, it dawned on me that what the Lord had given me at the temple was not an answer to a specific question I had. Instead, he had given me an experience of the two extremes of revelation. Before the uh. session, I had received clear thoughts, steady insight, just it, it felt so clear to me, just everything downloaded into my brain. And at the end of the session, I felt what it was like to not have your thoughts in order and to feel agitated and uncertain and you couldn't quite touch down anywhere in your thinking. Right. Um, and I walked away from that temple experience actually so much more, so, so much more grateful to have that experience rather than to have had the specific answer that I wanted. I felt right. I like I learned like I learned about the process of revelation rather than this particular content. So kind of being taught to fish rather than being yeah. given the fish yeah, exactly. kind of idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then a few months later, I was asked to give a sacrament meeting talk. And um, 
this, these thoughts on Revelation were kind of percolating for me. And I don't remember if I was assigned to speak on 1 Kings 19 or if I just came to it in my scripture studies. But with all of this thought about Revelation and this experience at the temple, um, this story jumped out to me in a new way. So you ready? Should we dive yeah. into it? Yeah, let's do the story. I love this story. Right. It's a famous story. This is the one where Elijah goes to Mount Sinai and there's the wind and the earthquake and the fire and God's not in any of those. Um, but if you kind of back up and get the whole setting of the story, it's a lot bigger than just that episode on the mountain, as you know. Right. Um, and it, the chapter opens... Um, with Elijah fresh off of his ministry, and it's been an amazing ministry. He's he's caused a famine and closed the heavens. He's been miraculously fed by ravens. He has raised a kid from the dead and given uh, miraculous food to this widow, and then he's reopened the heavens and ended the famine. And um, there's that whole scene with the priests of Baal, and I mean, he's just been a knock-it-out-of-the-park kind of a prophet. Unfortunately, his ministry has been so miraculous that it's drawn the attention of the state. Right. The king is especially the episode with the priests of Baal and killing a bunch of them. Yeah, yeah. The king and his wife are none too happy with this prophet who's challenging things, and so in response, in part to Elijah's ministry, um, the royal family has undertaken a campaign to systematically kill all of the prophets of the true God. And so although he'd experienced all these miracles, poor Elijah is now alone. Um, Israel as a whole does not seem much more righteous than they were when he started. And all of his colleagues have been brutally murdered by the state. And so we watch Elijah come off of this ministry, um, and he's feeling really dejected. And we, we see that in verse 4. So here's verse 4 of First Kings 19. Um, it says, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, it's enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And then he lays down and goes to sleep. So this is a prophet just utterly depressed, wishes he could die. He's done with this. He sees no point in going on. If ever there's a man who needs revelation and... Um, guidance for what to do next or comfort after all this. It's Elijah in this moment. And the first thing that happens, uh, starting in verse 5, is an angel comes to him, wakes him up, and says, hey, Elijah, get up and eat some food. Just kind of a, Which is a, always a good idea when you're feeling down. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah. A nap yeah. and a snack are usually a good first start. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for, both for my kids and me, anyway. I don't know about other people. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it works for us. That's right. So... Elijah wakes up, and sure enough, there's some miraculous food. He eats it, he drinks, but he's not too impressed. He goes back to sleep. Um, luckily, God is persistent and sends the angel back, and the angel shakes Elijah and says, No, Elijah, wake up and eat because there's a journey you're supposed to go on, and it's going to be too tough if you don't get some nourishment. So he, he does. He wakes up, and he eats and drinks. And then it says in verse 8, um, He went in the strength of that meal 40 days and 40 nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. So, uh, and, and Horeb is another name for Sinai for those mm -hmm. who aren't aware. Right. So anyway, sorry, keep going. Exactly. And the reason that's significant is because there's that, that surprising number, 40 days and 40 nights. That sounds pretty significant. It looks like what Elijah is doing is symbolically retracing the, the journey of the Exodus. He's going back to Mount Sinai. Um, it's a, it's a long journey from what I understand. It's, I think I think I remember like 250 miles or something through yeah. the desert. Kind of depends on if Mount Sinai is the traditional True. Mount Sinai or not. But you're right; mm -hmm. it's it is a a long ways, and it's not pleasant territory. Yeah. So, just to kind of 
back up and remember that Elijah needed some kind of revelation in this moment. And what he's received has not been anything that seems at all addressed to his current circumstances. <laughs> no, no. His request was to just be done being a prophet. He's done with this. And instead, an angel shows up and gives him food. Yeah. And then sends him on a journey through a desert for 40 days and 40 nights with apparently, as, as far as we're told, no extra revelatory anything. No. So this is strange. It's not at all correlated to what he thinks he needs or the questions that he thought he was asking. Yeah. If you feel like, okay, everything has been really hard and really been a failure and I'm ready to be done with this, the answer you're expecting is not, then go on a really tough walk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And go on a really tough walk where I may or may not speak to you at all yeah. for the next month and a half. Yeah. Right. So he gets to um, Mount Sinai, and he's apparently not changed his attitude at all, at all because as soon as he gets there, um, he, he goes into the cave and goes to sleep, takes a nap again. Um, and then in verse 9, the Lord comes to him with this really interesting question. You see it at the very end of the verse. The, the Lord came to him and said unto him, what doest thou here, Elijah? Which I think is a really interesting question. And if I'm Elijah, I'm feeling like that's a little rich coming from God. Yeah. Because I don't I don't know what what God was the one who told yeah. him to come. What do you think I'm doing here, God? Yeah. You can imagine him saying, um, I'm here cuz you told me to be. Precisely. Yeah. And so I think and honestly, I think we all feel that a lot of times like okay, I'm I'm here and I'm doing this because you told me to and nothing's making sense. And what's going on? Yeah. Right? And I think I'll I'll pause and riff on that for a minute. I think that's an important lesson for how God works with us, because often he will orchestrate situations in our lives that, and then ask us to make an account of them. Right. He'll give us commandments and tell us to do stuff and then say, okay, all right, what are you doing here? How did it go? What happened? Um, and I, I watch God here pulling some kind of explanation out of Elijah. God knows very well why Elijah's there. The question is, does Elijah know? Has he seen the miracles? Does he understand that God is doing something with him? Um, Elijah's response in verse 10 is just as jaded as it can be, it seems to me. So he says this, verse 10, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken my covenant, thrown down mine altars, and slain my prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So his answer seems to be, I'm here because I'm on the run after a disastrous ministry that you told me to go on. So there. Yeah, I did what you asked me to, and they're trying to kill me, and it's not been fun. Mm -hmm. Thanks for asking why I'm here. Yep, exactly. Just as as jaded as can be. And then the scene starts that we're also familiar with, and this is in verse 11, um, when the Lord says in response, again, not at all addressing anything Elijah offers here. No, this is no... No response to Elijah's Say, oh, words. Oh, it's okay, Elijah. It's not so bad as you think. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, let, me, let me now explain to you what's been going on. No, instead the Lord says, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. So Elijah does. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, a still small voice. Uh, so three kind of manifestations follow. An earth, well, a wind, then some, an earthquake, and then a fire. 
And then either a very small voice or there's another possibility in the Hebrew that's kind of fun, from what I understand. I'm no Hebrew expert, but I've seen translations that also render this just the sound of sheer silence. There's these three manifestations and then nothing, or three manifestations and something really different and small. And what's interesting to me about these three is that a, a mighty wind or a mighty earthquake or a mighty fire, those are all places where God has been in the Old Testament. Yeah. We have incredible stories where God manifests himself in a pillar of fire or in a mighty earthquake or in a mighty wind. Right. And so from Elijah's perspective, whenever he learns that he's supposed to go to Sinai and he's taking this symbolic journey, 40 days and 40 nights, fed on this miraculous meal, just like the children of Israel, he's going to the place of revelation. And here come the three kind of ways that revelation so often has happened in the Old Testament. And God's in none of them. Yeah. And this, I, I just, I, you feel for Elijah at this point, but also this seems to me so true to experience. How many times do we feel like we have urgent questions and the heavens just seem silent on our questions? And then God continues to ask strange things of us. And so we go to all the normal places where we've found God before, and this time he's not in them. Um, almost as if to say, I can imagine God saying here to Elijah, um, I'm not going to be in the typical places. Um, if you if you're looking for revelation, come communicate with me. Don't communicate with my stereotypes or my tropes. Just because I've been found in other places before doesn't mean I can be found yeah. there again. I'm not mechanical, like these yeah. idols. And 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 I think that means not just like for how you read about it in the scriptures, but including how you've experienced it. Mm -hmm. You're not always going to experience revelation from God in the same way. But anyway, sorry, keep keep going. I will. I will. I love this story. I can go forever. Um, <laughs> I'm so intrigued then by the scene that follows. So Elijah has uh, has has done all of this, um, witnessed these three manifestations. Um, and then at the end of verse 13, here's when, when God finally addresses him again, here's what he asks. Uh, behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? Same question as when he first got there. And his answer is identical. Verse 14. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Very same words, same question, right. same answer. And yet in between them sits this miraculous exchange, very strange one, that we don't know quite what to do with. So as I was reading this text again in preparation for that sacrament being taught, this seemed to me like a, a story from top to bottom about Revelation and how it's stranger and way, way more different than we expect. And importantly, not always correlated to our questions. Um, it seems to me that Elijah has here gone on a journey with some urgent needs, some urgent questions and concerns for his life. And it's almost as if God has said, I'm so glad you're here, but it that's actually not the right question. Uh, but it's a good thing you're here because there's been something else that I've been meaning to show you instead. Um, and that rang true in similar ways with my experience at the temple. I had an urgent question, but God wanted to show me something totally different. And I think that if Elijah in 1 Kings 19 had filtered this experience through the lens of his question. What matched up with my question? Where did I receive a direct, specific answer? He would have left this experience feeling like the heavens were closed. God never spoke to his particular concern. His question and answer exchange with God didn't change at all. 
And yet, God was profoundly evident in this miraculous um, ministration there on the mountain. Um, and so I guess if, if there has been a takeaway for me from this chapter and receiving revelation, it's that we need our questions. And we need them urgently. We need questions strong enough to take us out into the wilderness on long journeys through a silent heavens. But whenever we get where we're going, we also need to be ready to hear whatever God wants to show us, whether or not it matches with what we thought we needed. Uh, that's good. That's very great. And I think, I mean, if we were to continue the story a little bit, it, 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 it really makes that evident, right? The things that, that he's asked to do, uh, uh, some of them, I mean, God does address at the very end of this. He's like, well, actually, there are a few people who still... Are, are worshiping only me. So it's not so bad as you think. But what he asked him to do is to go and anoint um, a, a king to be over Israel who will be a king that will be righteous, but also incredibly violent uh, and eventually not so righteous, but also to anoint someone to be king of Syria who will be very destructive to Israel. Right? The, the, the things that Elijah is going to go do are actually end up being really tough for Israel. And, and I think... To me, that's really interesting that after he's done all these hard things and it's ended up for him personally not to be in a great, pleasant place. And he and and his answer to God's question is, you know, well, why, 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 this is tough. What do you want me to do now? God gives him more tough things to do. Right. It's not what he was looking for. It's not what he was wanting. Um but and and it's it's a completely different track than what he had been doing before. And I think sometimes that's how it is in life. If we're really willing to serve, then God's going to send us in some places that aren't what we were thinking. Sometimes we're sent here, like, and also geographically, he had him go really far south, so that now he can go back further north than he was already, right? And that's kind of how it is in life. Sometimes, if you're willing to serve, it's not going to go how you thought it was. You're sometimes going to be brought to this point, not because you actually needed to be doing something there, because that gets you to where now you can go to another place and do something else. And it may seem like you're backtracking and all of this, right? Uh, but if you're willing to do it, God will give you all sorts of interesting experiences, yeah. like you were saying. And I, and I loved what you said about, um, so the, the phrase, I looked it up while we were uh, talking here, that, that uh, Hebrew phrase, it, it is, um, uh, the adjective is like uh, small or fine or refined, really, kind of like uh, like teeny or refined or small grains of sand, or you know, just really refined. And, um, and the noun is uh, not a, a necessarily voice. It's a calm. It is sometimes translated as whisper, but but more often it's calm. And I think that's really instructive. So, I mean, if we were to translate this most literally, it would be there was a voice. So there is voice. It says call, and then it describes what kind of voice it is. It's a, a, a voice that is a really refined calm. That's lovely. And it dawns on me yeah. that, I mean, that... Pr- Presumably, something like that was also the sound before these three massive events. Yeah. But now Elijah can hear them in a new way. Yeah. Now the calm can can show up on his ears as refined. He can hear it anew because he has a contrast space for it. And that also seems really instructive for revelation, that often we are receiving the revelation constantly, perhaps, at certain times in our lives. We think it may be just your normal, average, run-of-the-mill, everyday circumstance. And until you have a contrast... Um, you can't hear what God is trying to send. So I think that's also true to my experience of God, that sometimes he will send you contrast experiences so you can hear what was there all along, but actually catch it. 
Yeah, that's very good. And and I wonder, I mean, it, it's not that different than what we hear in Doctrine and Covenants, right? Did I not speak peace to your mind, right? Mm-hmm. That's a refined calm, mm-hmm. maybe we could say, and it, and it can... It can feel different ways at different times. It's not always exactly the same flavor of refined calm, maybe we could say, but uh, but it is, uh, I, I like that description. I've never really looked in, mm-hmm. I've translated this before, but I guess I've never really gotten into that particular part before. In fact, I had to do this for an exam in a Hebrew class yeah. once, so you'd think I would have gotten into it. But anyway, I... I uh, I really like that insight, Kim. Mm-hmm. That's 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 great. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. And I'll I'll follow up too on your your comments just about the strangeness of of what God is doing here. I this is why I I love the Hebrew Bible in part precisely because the God who and, shows and maybe up. Maybe I'll just interrupt and yes. say when we say Hebrew Bible, we're meaning the Old Testament, yes. right? So, but uh, anyway, sorry. Thank sorry, you. Keep going. No, I'm, I'm trained. I've been trained in certain ecumenical yeah. Christian contexts for that's what you have to say. Old that's Testament. That's what I always Bible. say too. Yeah, yeah. Um, what I love about the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament is um, just how strange the God is who shows up in its pages. And sometimes that's a stumbling block for us or for students who feel like, this, this is not the God of the New Testament in the same way. Turns out he is. There's a lot of similarities. But I actually think that feeling of strangeness is really instructive. The God we worship is strange sometimes, but that's how he can break in and do things we weren't expecting. If we had a God who conformed to our every preconceived idea, we'd have an idol. And the yeah. God of the Old Testament is not an idol. He does strange things, and that, that comforts me for the times in my life which are often frequent that I feel like I don't understand what God is doing. Yeah. And and to me, that's actually incredibly comforting. I, this is a point I'm, I'm fairly passionate about. I think often we have in our mind what God should be like, and we try to force him to be that way. Yeah. And we read the scriptures to try and make it so that's how he is. And we, we selectively read them. So, you know, we, we have people who are saying, well, that's not how God is in the New Testament. If you read the New Testament close enough, it, it actually is, but we ignore those parts. Like we ignore Christ when he's chastising, when he's, I mean, he can be pretty harsh. Yeah. Uh, but we ignore that part and we focus on, uh, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more, right? Which is also worth focusing on, but but we, we selectively read, but but the Old Testament doesn't let us do that very well. Um, it's got both parts. It, well, actually, I think we selectively read the, there as well. In my opinion, but in, in the reverse way, in my opinion, as, as I've taught scripture courses for a long time now, I end up with more opportunity to talk about God's mercy and the, the atoning sacrifice and his love in the Old Testament than any other book of Scripture. Wow. Um, if I'm just being faithful to the text, here's what it says here, here's what it says here. It's, I actually have less opportunity in the Book of Mormon or the, uh, the New Testament. Uh, the Book of Mormon hits on atoning sacrifice as much, but... Um, uh, he's very strongly a God of mercy in here, but we seem to somehow miss those parts and we look at these strange parts. So all that is to say... What we need to do is let God present himself to us the way he is trying to, rather than give ourselves this kind of sanitized, watered-down God in a box that looks like what we expect him to look like. Let's let him present himself to us the way he is, and I would be disappointed if that matched exactly what I thought it should be, because then uh, it would suggest that God is pretty close to being like me. And I'm actually looking for a God who is not like me, who is much, much higher, whose ways are higher than my ways and his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. So I should expect that God is not going to behave in the way that I expect him to behave. Or if he did, it means I've got a pretty human God rather than a divine God. And I think we do experience that a lot, this this idea of 
I don't know why this is happening to me. I don't know. I was just doing what you asked me to do and look at how this is working out. I don't get what's going on here. But if we study the scriptures, that's that's how it is. And you're right. The answers are often not really answers the way we're thinking. Yeah. If, I, if I'm remembering correctly, the, the sacrament talk where I laid all this out, my, my poor ward, who thought they were going to just get a normal normal talk on Revelation. Um, the, the way I closed that talk was just by bearing testimony, as you do, of your own personal experiences. And I talked about how in my own life, it has been an unfailing truth that I, I that, that God surprises me. I can recognize that something comes from God to the degree that it just comes out of left field sometimes. It's just, it's so much more different than any wavelength I was thinking on. Um, and I, I actually think, I think we should do more work to um, embrace a God who surprises us. He says his work will be a work and a wonder. If it doesn't cause us to marvel, uh, I, we may be missing something. Yep, I agree. I agree. I, I, I just maybe share one other example because when you were talking about how he, he gives answers that aren't don't really seem to be answers, it made me think of this one. I always laugh at this one. So completely different story, but it's a similar kind of a thing. This is when God is is uh, well, it's Enoch recording God speaking to Adam, and he tells Adam that they have to be baptized, and uh, and God says or it says and so we're in Moses six fifty three, and our father Adam spake unto the Lord and said, Why is it that men must be baptized and or must repent and be baptized? Now listen to the answer. And the Lord said unto Adam, Behold, I have forgiven thee thy transgression in the Garden of Eden. You're like, uh, yeah. How is that an answer to the question? Now I think he actually does answer it about eight or nine verses later. And I, you get the same kind of thing actually in, in Moses chapter one, where Moses asks, you know, why did you do these things? And the first answer is, well, I have a good reason and I'm not telling you. He doesn't phrase it exactly that way, but that's really what he tells. He eventually says, well, my work and my glory is to bring to pass immortality and eternal life of man. But in both cases, he had to get them ready to understand what he's going to tell them. And I think that we kind of saw that with Elijah. And I know I see it with me that there are times when I'm looking for an answer and God can't give me that answer right now because I'm just plain not ready for that answer. So he gets me going along a path that makes no sense. And then it turns into a different path and then it turns into a different path. And finally, we get to the place where something makes sense. Yeah. Right? And it was not because God couldn't tell me it's because I couldn't understand it or receive it. So, yeah. That, anyway, I've, I've never noticed that in Moses six. That's, that's fun. I bet you get a good laugh in your classes out of yeah. those two verses. Yeah. It dawns on me too, that, um, that also fits my experience just in that, um, that often we get focused on non-urgent questions. Yeah. Here you have Adam who's getting really into this whole plan of salvation thing for good reason. He's getting, he wants yeah. to know about all these theological particulars. And God says, look, the urgent question here is, where's your heart? How are you doing? I've forgiven yeah. you. The, the urgent questions sometimes are, are the ones that we don't want to deal with, our own sins. Those are uncomfortable to deal with. Yeah. We like the kind of abstract uh, deep doctrine questions yeah. and so on. But I find it that's that's instructive that God turns around and gets the attention right back on Adam and his heart. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. So much fun, isn't I it? I love this stuff. I could yeah. go forever. Uh, that's beautiful, Kim. Well, thank you Yeah. so much. Beautiful stuff uh, uh, that uh, makes a difference in our lives. So I'm so glad to have had you with us and uh, just look forward for seeing great things from Kim in the future. So thank you. <laughs> thank you so much.